The following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers, and if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a twice-monthly book review and discussion podcast specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Ruiz Tremello, and I like to tell people at parties that I'm a botanist. And my name is Marguerite, and I'm a crypto-historian. Ooh, that's interesting. Together, Ruiz and I travel the world administering Turing tests, and this week we're recording in Kobaconk, Belgium. I'm sorry, that's actually Kokobonk, Belgium. Cocobonk, Belgium. I think it's actually Bococonk, Belgium. Snopadonk? That's the one, yes. As part of Marguerite's ongoing researches into crypto history, we're visiting Colobonk, Belgium, because it's actually the birthplace of voodoo. And the local voodoo market sells curses for cheaper than we've ever seen. I have eight enemies, so I'm going to buy eight curses, and by the weekend, I'll have eight fewer problems. <laughs> But we're not here to talk about voodoo, even though we just did, and we will again later. We're actually here to talk about The Last World of Mr. Goddard, a short story by J.G. Ballard from 1967. This week's story comes to us from The Day of Forever, a uh, book of short story collection by J.G. Ballard. Marguerite, would you be a dear and describe the cover for our listeners, such as it is? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... It's got a blue background, like a baby blue background. And then the rest of the picture is monochromatic, sort of sepia-toned. And it's got, uh, I guess they're statues. So there's one statue of a woman, she's naked, and it looks like it's just like repeated three times in progressively smaller uh, proportions. And then there's a fully clothed man in a suit. With a hat, and I think he's also a sculpture. And they're standing in bushes or something. Yeah, they're standing in bushes. It doesn't make sense, and I don't know what it means. <laughs> the era in which our story takes place is the present day. Oh, really? A.K.A. 1960s Britain. Oh, okay. Our story takes place in a small British city, which is unnamed. As usual, we'll start with the first couple sentences. For no apparent reason, the thunder particularly irritated Mr. Goddard. All day, as he moved about his duties as ground-floor supervisor, he listened to it booming and rolling in the distance, almost lost amid the noise and traffic of the department store. Mm-hmm. So we open on our main character, Mr. Goddard, no first name. Mr. You called it, I suppose. <laughs> who hears thunder all day long, and so does the logical thing that any of us would do. Gets annoyed. And heads to the roof oh. to check it out goes up to the roof of the department store where he works and actually heads up twice during the day but both times despite the thunder the sky is a peerless blue unmarred by any storm clouds the thunder does cease for a few minutes at a time but essentially continues for the entire day mr goddard is not the only one who hears the thunder however i would imagine not i would imagine everyone can hear it. yeah it's not imaginary is the point <laughs> yeah the roof has a terrace with some tables and chairs, and customers look confusedly up at the sky. They've never heard thunder before. Well, there's no clouds around, so that's oh. the confusing part. Oh, I see. Normally, Mr. Goddard, an elderly, gray-haired man, would have exchanged pleasantries with the various customers, but because the thunder was irritating him, he headed back inside to resume his duties as ground-floor supervisor. He didn't shake his fist at the clouds? 
Oh. Or no clouds, the thunder. I'm assuming it went unstated because he definitely did, and we <laughs> didn't need to hear about it. It was implied. Yeah, it was implied. At 6 o'clock, our department store closes, because that's how things worked in the 1960s. And Mr. Goddard is among the last to leave, clocking out under the eye of the night watchman, and walking half a mile to his house, a two-story villa surrounded by tall hedges. At first glance, the house looks like any other, if slightly more run-down than its neighbors. But the main difference is its windows, which have been boarded up for so long, they're completely overgrown with ivy. Hmm. Not creepy at all. Nope. Especially because underneath the boards the windows are protected by are some thick steel grills. Oh. What do you think is inside? Mmm, children. Mr. Goddard collects a bottle of milk that was left on his doorstep, because it's the 1960s. Uh, yep. And he heads inside the house to the kitchen, which also serves as his living room. He makes dinner, and halfway through preparations, there's scratching at his door. So Mr. Goddard opens it to let in Sinbad. A, cat. a neighborhood cat who Yay! joins him for dinner every awesome. night. So they have dinner sitting across the table from each other. Aww. And then Mr. Goddard begins his nightly routine. He first opens the back door and glances around to make sure that everything's okay. Then closes the door and bars it with a thick, heavy drop bar. Oh, so he's paranoid? Mm, well, those windows are pretty uh, boarded and bolted up. Next, he walks through the house one room after another. And we learn that every single room is completely empty of any furniture. Oh. As he searches each room, Sinbad is at his side, and he actually uses the cat as, quote, his sixth sense. Hmm. Checking all of Sinbad's reactions from room to room to see if anything is amiss. Interesting. He checks the middle grills over the windows, notes the bricked-up fireplace, then confirms the house is secure. He gives Sinbad a bowl of milk to thank him for his help. And, and then goes into his real living room. A room on the main floor, locked with different keys than any other door. Mm. Do you think he's uh, doing some kind of, like, ritualistic something or something? Voodoo, perhaps? Maybe. The second living room is also empty. Oh, okay. But with one exception. A lamp hangs from the ceiling, supported by a complicated pulley system that allows for vertical adjustments. Hmm. And a large safe sits at the back of the room. It's Ooh. green paint chipped and faded to metallic black. It's roughly three feet on each side. Mr. Goddard closes the door behind him and locks it, and then opens the vault with another key, swinging the door open to reveal a metal box roughly the same size as the vault itself. The sound of thunder reaches Mr. Goddard's ears. Hmm. And he realizes it's coming from the vault, where a large white moth has been locked in the vault and is fluttering and thumping about. Oh. The moth flies away once he opens the vault door, and then hits the wall where it falls to the floor stunned. Mr. Goddard gently sweeps the moth through the crack under the door, then goes back to the vault, where it takes every muscle in his elderly body to pull out the box and pull it into the center of the room underneath the light. Pulling up a chair and using the pulley system to lower the light directly above the box, Goddard opens the lid to reveal a model city painstakingly crafted to be an exact duplicate of the unnamed city itself. Oh, hmm. The tallest tower is 14 inches high and is six stories. Like real life? Uh, just like. <laughs> the streets and sidewalks are painstakingly replicated, and the buildings even have tiny panes of glass on every single window, through which can be seen perfect replicas of the interiors of offices, houses, and supermarkets, 
right down to the coins inside the bank. What? The sides of the box are painted to reveal a city stretching into the distance, which fades into a rolling countryside so perfectly crafted it's impossible to tell where the models end and the painting begins. Did he make this, or is he like some kind of inheritor of this? Fortunately, because it's a short story, we'll never find out. Oh, crap. Suddenly, small people begin to emerge from the houses, one or a few at a time, until the city is waking up, and the streets are filled with the hustle and bustle of a morning commute. Hmm. Shops and offices come to life like a well-ordered hive. And above it all, Mr. Goddard looms. So is this uh, an exact replica of the city down to, like, the people moving? That's or a... is it an, an, a different entity? It's just, like, its own city. You're about to find out. Yay! Mr. Goddard is looming or lurking above it all. As always. And he sees all these figures in the box, and most of them he recognizes them. They're townspeople, like Mrs. Hamilton or Mr. Sellings. His face betrays no emotion, but Mr. Goddard seems happy to observe. Hmm, like a creeper. Suddenly, Goddard spots something odd. It's Mr. Durant, the stockroom supervisor at his department store, at the bank, meeting with the manager, Mr. Sellings. Goddard watches as Durant rants and rages while the banker, Sellings, sits impassionate, apparently uninterested. Hmm. Finally, Durant loses his temper, and the banker shakes his head, saying no about something. Hmm. Durant leaves and heads straight to the hairdressers, where a room at the back hides the town bookie, <laughs> who conveniently has a skylight through which Goddard watches. Convenient. As Durant explains something with passion, and the bookie appears interested and invites Durant to sit down. I'm guessing he wants money. But the drama is unfinished because Goddard is suddenly distracted. Because behind the department store, there's a five-story apartment block, and on a fifth-floor balcony, two men are securing a telescoping ladder to the balcony railing. The ladder secured, one man starts climbing the ladder, and Goddard realizes they're trying to escape the box. <gasps> Bastards. Watching with astonishment, Goddard sees they're within eight inches of the top of the box, which scales to about 40 feet for the miniature people. <laughs> they continue securing the ladder and working to extend its length, but the chimes of the clock can be heard coming from Goddard's kitchen. It's midnight, and he has to go to bed. No. So closing the lid of the box, he works very hard to put it back in the vault, then seals the vault tight and exits the room, making sure to lock it behind him. How can they breathe? <laughs> the next day at work, there's no moth trapped inside the box, and so there's no thunder. Oh, yeah, of course. So he's not annoyed and wanders the store in a cheerful state, chatting with customers and co-workers, quote, making full use of the countless trivial insights he had been provided with the previous evening. Oh. Wouldn't that be disconcerting for people, though? You would think so. Some might say that if there's a crazy, creepy old man who knows your business at all times, <laughs> you might react negatively. Yes. All morning long, Goddard keeps an eye out for Mr. Durant, worried about the man's meeting with the bookie. And at noon, he finally spots him and finds a reason to chat with him, inquiring about Durant's upcoming holidays. Durant doesn't want to talk to him. Until Goddard asks, quote, If I could help you at all, do let me know. I'd be glad to make you a small loan. An old man like me hasn't much use for it. Hmm. Because when you're old, you don't need money. Nope. In the 1960s. You don't need to, like, eat or anything. Never. Durant suddenly warms up and says, That's very kind of you, Goddard. Very kind. Goddard asks, Forgive me for mentioning it, but would 50 be any use to you? 
Dollars? Yes. Because in the 1960s, I was like eight to hundred dollars. Hmm. I don't think that inflation scaled quite like that. But. <laughs> Durant narrows his eyes and then asks if Sellings is putting him up to it. When Goddard denies it, Durant declares, quote, You must have been following me around for days. Yeah, see, finally someone's suspicious about this dude's omnipresent knowledge of everyone's shit. <laughs> you know just about everything about everybody, don't you, Goddard? I have a damn good mind to report you. Ooh, to who? To the, I don't know. This old man knows too many things. Goddard has no idea how to respond, but fortunately realizes that everyone in the department store is running outside. Out the back doors to the alley, where a hubbub has begun. Police are on the way. Because two men have built a ladder high above the fifth floor balcony of the apartment building next door. And the ladder has collapsed and both men have fallen to the ground and are dead. Oh no. People are confused, uncertain just why the men would have built such a ladder, where they were trying to go. <laughs> that night, Goddard rushes through the security checks of his house, and even Sinbad the cat seems to recognize his urgency. Aww. Heading up to the vault, Goddard pulls the box out and starts watching the town wake up. Quote, the pattern he realized was changing. As yet, it was undefined, but slight variations were apparent. Subtle shifts in the relationships between people in the box. Hmm. People are starting to realize they're in a box? Goddard watches perplexed, but the thing that confuses him most is a meeting where Durant is introducing Sellings, the bank manager, to his bookie. And the three talk Ooh, for hours. That is weird. <laughs> the three talk for hours, still in discussions, when Goddard finally puts the box away at two in the morning. Over the next few days, Goddard watches the crowds through the store, trying to detect the changes he had witnessed in the box. His 65th birthday is approaching, and Goddard uses the occasion as a way to start conversations with people. Hey, it's my birthday soon. Oh, Everyone wow. loves the person who comes up to them with mm -hmm. that, right? Hey, did you know it's my birthday in a few days? Hey, I have a birthday just like you, but it's mine. 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 Most of the people he tries to converse with give him terse and uninterested responses. Of course. That's not a very good talking point. And I have a feeling he's socially incompetent. Oh, probably. And because he knows everyone's business, maybe it's creepy too. Mm, I would imagine. How's that rash, Mr. Smith? <laughs> An inquest is held into the deaths of the two men who are climbing the ladder. But no real answers are learned, and the coroner is confused saying it feels as though he hasn't been provided with all the relevant information. They fell off a ladder. What more do you need, man? Maybe he's looking for a reason why they were climbing the ladder. I guess, but people are weird. Agreement sweeps through the room. People seem aware that something fishy is going on, but no one seems to know what. Equally puzzling is that nearly a third of the department store hands in their two weeks' notices. Quote, most of them for reasons that were patently little more than excuses. Hmm. When Mr. Goddard probed for the real reasons, he discovered that few people were aware of them. The motivation was purely unconscious. Huh. As he leaves the store that night, Goddard sees Selling, the bank manager, standing on the roof of the bank, staring up at the night sky. Hmm. Watching the situation inside the box, however, Goddard learns something startling. Durant has introduced Sellings to his bookie because of some kind of scheme. Ooh, a scheme. A conspiracy is afoot. Quote, he felt that some obscure compulsion was generating within the minds of those in the box, reflected into the bizarre and unpredictable behavior of their counterparts in the outside world. Hmm. 
Goddard decides that he need only... Oh, wait, so the box is a separate entity, but they're just ones reflected from the other? So it's a little bit confusing and irrational, to be honest, because it seems like the box is in the future by about... Half a day? About half a day, yeah. Because it's about mm, 7 or 8 p.m. and he opens the box and it's morning. Yeah. And he watches. Yeah, it seems to be that. But it's constantly referred to as models not as buildings, and we don't quite know how those people exist in the box. So it's just like real life is a um, hologram projected from the box, perhaps? Ooh, that's a not bad theory. Goddard decides that he need only monitor the situation, and hopes that within a few weeks everything will make perfect sense. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a few weeks. He does. Because on his 65th birthday... Goddard gets to work and finds Mr. Sellings waiting for him, congratulating him on his retirement. Oh, surprise. Goddard's confused, saying, quote, But I don't wish to retire, sir. I've made no plans. Sellings is firm, saying that the board of the department store has met and considered his case and decided he deserves a rest after his many years of service. <laughs> In other words, you're fired, old Go man. Goddard puts his foot down, quote, If you were to ask the floor managers and assistants not to speak of the customers, they would all insist that I would stay on. They'd be very shocked at the suggestion of retirement. Mm, they'd probably be like, yes, please get rid of the creeper. He <laughs> knows too much about me. Would they? Sellings asked curtly. My information is to the contrary. Believe me, your retirement has come at a very lucky time for you, Mr. Goddard. <laughs> I've had a great number of complaints recently that otherwise I should have been obliged to act upon. Promptly and drastically. Ooh, and fatally. <laughs> As he leaves the billing department for the last time, Selling's words echo through his head. And quote, Goddard realized that Selling's was right. Floor by floor, department by department, counter by counter, he recognized the same inner expression, the same attitude of tacit approval. Hmm. They were all glad that he was going. Um, he does sound a bit, like, unnerving. Not one of them showed real regret. A good number slipped away before he could shake hands with them. Others Oof. merely grunted briefly. Oof. <laughs> Several of the older hands who had known Mr. Goddard for 20 or 30 years seemed slightly embarrassed, but none of them offered a word of sympathy. Wow, that is harsh. Finally, when one group in the furniture department deliberately turned their backs to avoid speaking to him... Wow, cold. Mr. Goddard cut short his farewell to her. He heads home in a daze, confused because he always goes out of his way to help others. He put endless thought into helping them arrive at the best solution to their problems. Oh, he's a nosy old man. Nosy old man who knows too much about them. Mm-hmm. Always up in people's business, giving them advice they didn't ask for. Hey, I was watching you have trouble in bed the other night. <laughs> Sinbad the cat is waiting on his doorstep when Goddard gets home, and Sinbad is delighted that Goddard is home early. Well, God, someone is. So he heads inside, makes some tea, and serves milk to Sinbad, and then goes straight for the vault. Quote, somewhere here, he knew, was the reason for his dismissal that morning. If only his eyes were sharp enough, he would discover it. Oh, better get some glasses. Goddard opens the vault and swings the heavy box out, but his shoulder twinges, and he almost drops it. They'll kill everyone. Grabbing a hand on its bottom, he supports its weight, steadying the box for a few seconds, but again, the weight is too much for him. Quote, a small spiral revolved before his eyes, gradually thickening into a deep black whirlpool that filled his head. Before he could restrain it, 
the box tore itself from his hands and plunged to the floor with a violent metallic clatter. Goddard collapses. <gasps> no! And the only sound is his quiet breathing. Then, something moved in the space between the open lid of the box and the floor. A small figure. And within ten seconds, the figure is joined by three others. They're all escaping the box. Quote, In small groups, they spread out across the floor, their tiny legs and arms rippling in the light. Ugh, gross. Behind them, a score more appeared, pressing out in a solid stream, pushing past each other to escape from the box. Soon the circle of light was alive with swarms of tiny figures, flickering like minnows in a floodlit pool. In the darkness by the corner, the door creaked sharply. <laughs> Together, the hundreds of figures froze. Eyes glinting suspiciously. Yes, the cat. The head of Mr. Goddard's cat swung round into the room. Yes. For a moment it paused, assessing the scene before it. A sharp cry hissed from its teeth. With vicious speed, it bounded forward. Yay! In glee! It's gonna be snack time! Hours later, Goddard wakes up. We don't know how many hours. He gently tilts the box right side up, then heads out to the kitchen, where Sinbad is chewing on something. <laughs> person! As he approaches, Sinbad drops the object to the floor and wanders away. Goddard inspects the dropped object, then sighs and leans against the wall. Sinbad, meanwhile, rediscovers the object he dropped and pounces on it and gulps it down. Nom nom nom! Motioning for the cat to follow him, Goddard heads outside, and we reach the final sentences of our story. It was 2.45, early afternoon. The houses around him were silent, the sky a distant Pacific blue. Here and there sunlight was reflected off one of the upstairs bay windows, but the street was motionless, its stillness absolute and unbroken. Mr. Goddard gestured the cat onto the pavement and closed the gate behind it. Together they walked out into an empty world. <laughs> I like this story. And thus ends the last world of Mr. Goddard. <laughs> I think he has more than one world. It's apparently his only world because the vault is basically his only possession. That's true. Besides his kitchen. We don't know if he has any other rooms, though. So, because it's a short story, there's too many questions unanswered, of course. True. Uh, we don't know where the box came from. We don't know how it came into being at all. There's no way the cat ate all the humans. There'd be Hundreds. some. They would, like, go back into the box to hide from cat. That would have been a great place for them to go, actually. Because then <laughs> if the cat followed them in there, he could have been knocking over buildings. Oh, brilliant. This could have gone in so many better directions than it did. <laughs> for everyone, I mean. Especially the cat. I feel like if the cat was knocking over buildings and stuff, it would probably be safer for people. Because they could hide in those buildings. Mm -hmm, they were in the rubble. In the rubble. Um, rather than just on an empty floor. Mm -hmm. In an empty house. Yep. There's nowhere to hide. He has no furniture in any room. If At least if he had like a sofa, they could hide under the sofa maybe. I'm surprised the cat ate all of the humans. Like if it was our cats, they would play with them for like 12 hours. <laughs> well, we don't know how long Goddard was passed out for. Mm, that's true. I feel, though, that unless he was... Because he, they walk out of the house at 2.45 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And we know that he got fired first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't account for why the city is empty. Can't eat all people. Well, no, but the time dilation, remember? The box oh, is off about yeah, 12 hours ahead. Right. 
So, uh, J.G. Ballard, what happened? Oh, dude. Internal consistency failed. Mm-mm-mm. Mm. Because they should have walked out into a world filled with people and then been attracted by the hubbub of all the people leaving the box. Yeah. And maybe he would have been like, no, don't leave the box. No, don't go through that weird interdimensional gate thing. Unless he was uh, unconscious for like 24 hours. Which he very well could have been. That is true. And then definitely the cat would have had time to eat everyone. <laughs> and they had nowhere to hide because he had no sofa for them to hide under. <laughs> There's probably a few dozen underneath the oven. Maybe some more under the fridge. Yeah, the door was open because that's how the cat got in. That's so right. they could have just... Got I think some of them would have escaped. Probably. Unless Goddard stepped on them on his way out. <laughs> oh, cursed on my foot. Hey, when that happens. So messy. So that has been The Last World of Mr. Goddard by J.G. Ballard. J.G. Ballard is a very well-known writer. Mm -hmm. uh, he's written such books as Empire of the Sun mm -hmm. and your favorite and mine, Crash. Crash! Do you remember that one? Nope. That's the one with the car crash fetishists. Oh, the movie. Well, yeah, he wrote the book the movie. <laughs> he wrote the book the movie was based off of, uh -huh. yes. Uh, yeah, that he has quite the mind. Uh, interesting. I never actually watched the movie. The crash one? Mm -hmm. There's no need. <laughs> this has been the Everett Book Club. You can visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. Or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or mostly Instagram under Everett Book Club. If you or your organization are developing an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests for a pseudo-reasonable fee. Please note, there is no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism. And if you know of any second-hand bookstores that deserve some love, email us and we'll give them a shout-out. So, Marguerite, I want to buy some curses from the voodoo market, but is there anything you're shopping for? Uh, yeah, I was looking for a new amulet with plus 12 reflect and dexterity boost. You know, if you've got reflect amulet, I won't be able to cast heal on you. Why can't you ever heal anyways? You're too busy min-maxing your DPS. I kind of like the idea of healing, though. It's not enough to be useful. Well, not in a battle. <laughs> I carry a lot of potions. <laughs> well, I guess that's useful. Cool.